Wait a minute. Wait a minute. My folks drove it up here from oh, the Bahamas. And welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography, where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. And have we got one hell of a show for you today. This is an episode full of questions, and we've got answers. Have you ever wondered how labs develop black and white film? Do your photos tell a story? All of those things will be answered for you, but we've also got an interview with David Chow, a zine review, and some news. But before any of that, Vanya, how the hell are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Beaches are kind of open. Yay! Um, I finally served. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) It has been how long since you've actually been able to surf? Three months. That's crazy. Has there ever been a moment in your life since you started surfing that that, that it's been that long? Maybe when after I had Marley, but I think it was two months. And then during pregnancy, but I kind of surfed a little bit until I got too big and then you know like yeah. I was like knee paddling around and stuff but yeah it's been a long time since I've taken this much time off definitely just taking time off doing an activity in general I think you just go back to it and you're like oh my gosh what <laughs> happened I'm not, I did not use any of these muscles so yeah it'll take some time to kind of like get my footing again I guess sure. But I'm excited. I'm going to probably go out tomorrow again and kind of get back on schedule as far as trying to add that back into my life. It's yeah. very important. I brought a camera down there today and I left it in my bag. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to like go out there and just enjoy the moment. I'm glad I did too yeah. because I, I felt like I needed to just surf. And probably for the next couple of weeks, I'll probably just be surfing and not really photographing very much just okay. to kind of, you know, get my body back to feeling comfortable in the water again. Sure. Take that photography. Have a seat. <laughs> well, I mean, I did... I did shoot that little disposable. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but that was just like swimming. So I decided to go for a swim just to get into the water. And that was really nice. And bringing a camera along for that is pretty simple. Sure. The pictures you were getting out of that the waterproof camera with the Fuji 800, really nice. <laughs> you've, been, you've been showing a few of those here and there, but they're really fun. I know. I was like, wow, it's a terrible waste. Disposable cameras are a terrible waste. Yeah. Not really into the whole idea of having to throw them away. I did get a little, which I thought was a disposable camera in a little water housing uh, online. It was like some deal. And I brought that also. And I took it down to the beach and realized that I can load that back up. And it's super tiny. I'm totally stoked. I don't exactly know. I haven't read <laughs> the directions. I don't know what it's shooting at. I'm, I'm just going to probably end up throwing 400 speed film in it and see what happens. Yeah. I had a really super rad package come into the mail. Yeah. I mean, I've really just been, unfortunately, buying bullshit cameras. (laughs) I mean, honestly, it's almost every day that you'll message me and you'll be like, oh, look at this. I I got this new bullshit camera. It's not 
every day he's being over dramatic. Sometimes it's like two or three times a day. Like, oh, UPS brought this, FedEx brought this, and oh my God, the post office brought this. Three bullshit cameras in one day. It's not that bad. It really isn't. Ridiculous. Anyways, I think that's enough of me. Oh, of you. What have you been up to? I haven't been up to like a whole lot. Since the last episode, I've mailed out 60 some packages of fuzzy perito. <laughs> I've been going to the post office a lot. I'm happy about that. We sold out. We sold out in I think 5 days. That's amazing. It is. It's really really <laughs> Thank cool. Thank you you guys. <laughs> yeah, we really appreciate it. Really, I don't know that we could do it any other way. The podcast is kind of supported by things like that. We don't do Patreon, we don't do NPR style pledge drives. We just sell film and zines and you know, we've got news on both of those fronts coming up. So so stay tight. Stay tight. Stay yo. tight. <laughs> what the fuck is that? I've been getting really excited about developers, and that's on you. You have really, really encouraged me to try new developers. And I know there's that whole idea of find the developer that works for you and stick with it. And I have. I have Rodinol, and I've got HC110, and I know exactly what I use them for. For Dev Party, your idea was, let's just try a bunch of new developers. And my response to that was, I don't want to do that. I, I was like, ah. <laughs> But no, we tried Pyro last episode. Half of us well, did. Well, you tried Pyro. Um, <laughs> I tried it like two days later. Yeah, you've since tried Pyro and it's great. And you have the, the WD-40 Pyro, whatever the fuck it's called. <laughs> WD-2D. R2D2. I'm excited to try that. I got some of that. And I got some cyanotype chemical mix. Oh my gosh, kit. I totally forgot about yeah, that. I don't even know what to do with it. <laughs> so I got that. I've got some chemicals coming in to make D23. Yes, that's going to be really exciting. Yeah. Stay tuned for that. And so I'm really excited about that. And suddenly photography's kind of opened up a new window. I didn't really see that coming. And that's kind of cool. Being able to experiment and kind of refresh yourself with new processes are very helpful. You know, I think a lot of people feel very stagnant right now. I One thing I discovered about being off of work for the past two months is that I really like not working. <laughs> yes, we had this discussion. And I don't mean to be flippant about it. I know there's people who are, are essential. My job is not essential in any way, shape or form. So I have been off and compensated and all of that. And that's kind of nice. And I'm very privileged to have that. But through all of that, I have discovered that I, I really, really like not working. But every day feels like Sunday. And that's good and bad because you have a day off, but it always feels like that fucking Morrissey song, Every Day is Like Sunday or whatever. I wish it wasn't such a bastard because that's such a good song. <laughs> oh my goodness. I don't know. I'm a mess. Yeah, I mean, I've seen some stories recently, just like, I don't know what to photograph anymore. I have prepare for a boring feed is what I saw recently. I get it. It sucks. Okay, so we got some messages on our answering machine. We do. We asked a question that really limited the number of replies that we got, and we knew it would happen <laughs> because it's a question that's not very clear. Do you feel that your photos or a selection of your photos tell a larger story? It's a yes or no question, but obviously the implication is don't just call in and, and give us a yes or no. I think I'm going to do that next time. <laughs> Why? <laughs> you don't need to do that. So why don't we just shut up and push the button? Yes. Hello. No one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. 
This is Denise G316. I heard a saying once that every photo you take is essentially a self-portrait. If that is truly the case, then my photos are unfolding and telling the various stories of my life. Depending on when in my life I took the photos, how I was feeling in general, mentally and physically, shows up in my work. Some are more specific in what they're saying than others, but they all have a statement to make. I have kind of a similar thought when it comes to my tattoos. They're kind of like timestamps. So it doesn't even matter like what the tattoo is really. It's every single one I can look at and I can remember the day that I got it and how old I was and what I was doing and what, what I was into and all sorts of stuff. So Well, they yeah. tell us with like negatives. Oh, you shoot things on negatives. That'll last forever. That's wonderful. And when you get a tattoo, like, you know, that's going to be there forever, right? Yeah. Hey, y'all. It's Nick. Gravity Train on Instagram. It's really rare for me to set out to tell a story with photography. For me, it's more of a mindfulness exercise than anything else. But over time, as those photographs accumulate into kind of a record of my lived experience, I find stories in them that I wasn't really looking to tell at the time, but that become valuable later on. So I guess there are stories there, but only in this kind of post hoc way. I've done that too. You look back and you, and you remember that story and you, you're there and all of that. And you can, I'm sure you're reconstructing the story in your head like, like everybody else does. And so is there a way to do that in the present as you're shooting? I would hope so. I would hope so too, because I'd like to do that. Yes. <laughs> I think that all art has a mostly unknowable story behind it. And the attempt to guarantee that to the audience is what gives it an authenticity over, say, something at Target. So to me, just as important as, as what photos I take to tell a story is, is, is really how, how do I find a venue for them? What order do I put them in? And before I can tell any story about the artist or the place or the event or my life or my inner state, I have to get people to look at it. And I'm working on that. I think I'm doing all right. Certainly throwing myself at it. I just got his zine in the mail yesterday. And I was thinking about reviewing it this episode, but I feel like I don't have enough time to really look at it and Honestly, when people send me things, I really want to take my time and, and really look at it. And and he's it looks amazing. Yeah, you showed me a little bit of it. And yeah, it looks really good. <laughs> I'm excited to see his story. Yeah. Hey, guys, this is Alan being Alan on Instagram. Big question this week. But the short answer is yes, I do feel that my photos or a selection of them tell a larger story. That's why I made a zine. That's why I keep shooting. That's why I'm in the process of putting together a book. It's a contribution to the larger scheme of making photography. Well, yeah, I like that idea. But I guess apart from the Nez Pierce book that didn't really work out yet, maybe, I generally don't really think of like, like a larger story with my zines. They are. Maybe, but I don't I don't set out to do that. I don't consider that when I'm putting it together or and definitely not when I'm shooting. Maybe, you know, maybe everything would change if I would just do that. I don't know. But I'm <laughs> kind of an old cranky bastard. Dear Eric and Vanya, Bill Two here. This is a vexing question. I almost always start with an image rather than a narrative, but I often feel that my work should say something and that if it doesn't, then it may just be superficial crap. And I still feel like I'm just learning the vocabulary at the moment. Sometimes I'll create a pretty turn of phrase, but it isn't a story. It's the issue whenever I think about creating a zine. 
my projects start with just a picture. Maybe the photo itself was arbitrary at the time, but developing it and scanning it and kind of seeing something. So like, for example, my beach portraits, which was my last scene, I just remember bringing the camera down to the beach and some of the like older guys were like, whoa, like that's crazy. <laughs> you know, like, what is it? You know, I'm like, oh yeah, it's camera, it's film camera. And I ended up being like, well, hey, you know, perfect opportunity for me to ask them, like, can I photograph you? And they allowed me. That's how I got the picture of Otz. And yeah. that's what made me realize I wanted to take beach portraits. So it wasn't even really <laughs> a project <laughs> until I had already shot the picture. Hi, this is Julian Watley, Julian Watley IV on Instagram. The larger story that I hope to tell of my photographs is that this world, reality, our relationship with reality is mysterious and uncertain. Further, what we presume to be fixed and solid is impermanent and evanescent and dreamlike. I think every film photograph is dreamlike to me. And I do see people's like personalities and what they're into when I see a photograph. You can really show life exactly how things appear, pure documentary kind of photography. You know, you, there's a certain film that you can use, a certain camera, a certain lens that you can use. And it looks like digital, for lack of a better word. But you can make different choices and you can alter the appearance from maybe subtly to even like adding acid or other stuff to your film to destroy it a bit to really bring on the surreal realism and you know kind of the unreal end of things and, and show that in a kind mm -hmm. of an impressionistic sort of way i like julian kind of hang in the middle ground of that i'm certainly not pushing the surreality of images or anything like that uh, they don't make you question life as we know it i guess but i do try to photograph things how they feel rather than how they look well, hello, Eric and Vanya. This is Ben. And I've been pondering your question whether my photographs tell a larger story or if I feel that they tell a larger story. And I'm not really sure, but that's the goal. I would love to tell a larger story with my photos. As much as I like a pretty picture, I want it to tell a story. So to look at my pictures, I think for the most part, they're about my kids. And my kids do not like getting their photo taken. So I have to be sneaky about it. So I'd call it the secret lives of my kids. Yep. I totally know about that sneaky life. <laughs> Honestly, Ben's photos are amazing. If you guys don't follow him, you definitely should. These are not posed portraits. These are those beautiful moments in between. You really should take a look. His Instagram handle is Ben Yount, DDS. If my photography doesn't tell a story, that means I have failed miserably. Because if you follow me, you know that my photography is totally centered around my kids. And I started documenting their lives before they were even born. And here I am 12 years later. So yeah, that's what I do. I think they'll appreciate that. Sure. As time goes on. And it seems like they're totally fine with it from the pictures. I don't know how much you bribe them, but you're doing a good job. <laughs> Eric, did your parents take pictures of you? I think so. Yeah, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pictures in numerous volumes of photo albums. Are you kidding me? I'm not. No, there is a lot. There's a lot of pictures of me. 
Okay, so who do I need to call to get some of these pictures? I don't know. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, my mom did a lot of documenting. Uh, she did stop. There was like a certain period where she kind of stopped. Okay. And she gave me her camera, so maybe that's why. I don't know, but... Could, could be. I find that, yes, they can tell a larger story, but only if they're edited together to do so. Otherwise, they tend to be fragments that other people really can't appreciate oh. as much as I can. Because I was there when I took them, and I remember everything that was happening outside of the lens and the camera, as well as what happened in front of it. And other people cannot have that experience. They don't have the context that I do. So it's up to me to figure out how to make that happen. This was our last reply, and it's one that I was really hoping somebody would would come up with. And so thanks for that. And in a way, this goes back to that old chestnut of authorial intent. And this is a discussion that when it comes up in literature, I, I really just quickly slink away from. I have friends that, that love talking about authorial intent. I disappear immediately. I don't want to get into it. All right, fine. Without them here, I do admit that it's something that, that we could talk about once in a while. Doing a zine or a series, it's our job to provide as much or as little context as we like to the story that we hope to convey. But it's not the job of the viewer to pick up on that story. While our intentions are incredibly important to us, they might not mean anything at all, or might be interpreted differently by others. And it's probably best that we become okay with that. And this is kind of a middle ground thing. So it's up for debate whether our vision or their vision is the most important. I, I, This is, again, what I hate about this debate. But I think sometimes it's okay to just put things out there and let them speak without context. And yeah, that might mean that our story is missed. But I don't know, is that really all that important? I guess it just depends on what story you're telling. This whole discussion is stupid. I hate it. But it really- <laughs> You picked the question, by the way. I know I did. <laughs> This is what this, this whole quarantine thing is doing to me. I'm sorry, everybody. I'm very, very sorry. I think with zines, I want them to tell a story. I, I want there just to not be a bunch of random pictures. I think people do that really well. And I totally respect you if you want to do that. But for me personally, I, I want there to be something else in there. I want there to be a story told. And if they want to interpret it their way that's totally fine yeah as long as it's not like a negative like right terrible yeah. thing about women or anybody in general then i'm cool with sure, that sure sure so i guess we should probably answer this ourselves if we haven't beat around the bush enough with that i think we did but yeah i guess if you, you know this is a podcast we can talk <laughs> and you'll listen it's free i would like to think that i'm that deep but not really okay. in all seriousness i do try to shoot with purpose and even sometimes plan for a larger body of work like i explained uh, before sometimes in an instant sometimes when i see the picture sometimes when i'm there sometimes when i'm listening to music it really just happens like that inspiration which <laughs> has kind of not been around for a while no uh, but you'll you'll sometimes call me up and you'll have an idea after like listening to a music listening to music or watching something, you'll come up with an idea rather yes. than here's some pictures. You'll come up with an idea and then find the pictures or create the pictures to make that idea happen. Yes. That's, that's pretty cool. I'm really bad at remembering my ideas. <laughs> I write them down for you. I know you do. And thank you. Because <laughs> I do have a lot of ideas. Yes, you do. <laughs> 
it's it's probably something that I'm actually pretty good at. As far as maybe doing them all, no, definitely not. Uh, there are some things that I'm working on hopefully for this summer, but really it's all still up in the air. I think I mostly shoot with a zine in mind and every image I choose, I choose with intent and purpose behind it. I'd, I'd say you do. Absolutely, you do. How about you? If you follow my photography, you can kind of tell that I've had this unwritten rule since I've started shooting film again. That's nothing modern, no modern cars or buildings. And I guess in a way I'm creating a story or creating, I don't know, some weird altered reality. It's not the 1970s, but I'm photographing it like it is. I'm not really sure what the story is there. 70s were weird. It's not like the past was better or anything like that. I'm, I'm absolutely not saying that. And, and, and in a lot of cases, especially if you weren't a straight white guy, it's pretty horrible. I've always liked the idea of variation, though. And for me, that variation usually comes in like an array of cameras or a bunch of different emulsions that I shoot every scene with. But after the piece we've done in the FSA photographers last episode, I've looked into some of the more famous shots, like Dorothea Lang's migrant mother photo. And so that was actually like part of a series that she did. She took six different photos of this family. And when you look at them as a whole, you really get a, a, a much fuller idea, a probably a much more realistic idea than that single photo. And I really I really like that notion where you can photograph a place and one photo will give you an impression of it. But when you take like a half dozen of those photos, maybe from different angles or different parts or just around that same area, it really gives you a more, it gives you a more realistic idea of your subject. And it's, it's an interesting thing for me. It's something that I really haven't done before. In that way, I think I'm changing a little bit. I like it. Yeah, yeah. that's good. On today's episode, we're giving a call to a large format photographer who has undertaken a couple of massive projects over the years. Hey, ready to give David a call? Yes. Hello? Hi. Hey. <laughs> this is David Chow. He grew up between San Francisco and Osaka, Japan. The way he captures the story of people and their culture is something a bit different than we've seen before. While his individual photos may be striking, his series and collections are what create a powerful narrative. Let's go for it. On this episode, <laughs> we're talking about how a collection of photos can tell a larger story. So we'd like to talk a bit about your four-month photography trip through Japan. Uh, what was the project and what made you decide to take it on? Yeah, so... The project was a project that I conceived of after my grandmother had passed away a couple years ago. And one of the most important parts about it to me was I wanted to go experience the places that she grew up, which was Hiroshima Prefecture. And one of the most important parts about it was getting to know the people in the place. And so I thought the best method to do that was through photography. Um, it was a passion that both my grandmother and I shared together. As I was kind of getting more into photography, it was kind of more toward the later stages of her life. Um, and for me, it was just the finding a way to connect kind of my life with her life through this project. Wow. So she took pictures too. Yeah, so she used to take photos all the time when I was little. Um, and it wasn't until a little bit later on that I discovered that she used to love shooting um, cameras with all her siblings. And I think it stems from the fact that um, her siblings and herself were interned in the, in the U.S. during World War II. Mm. And there's something about kind of not losing your sense of freedom and not being able to actually hold and capture memories that for all of herself and her siblings drew them to cameras to be able to capture these family memories, family stories, these moments that in time that and it became really important to them. 
That's great. Oh. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> okay, so about the the gear with the project. For a four month project using a four by five camera, the gear became like really important to you. How did you decide upon the camera that you that you chose? Yeah, so four by five has been a format that I've loved ever since I touched it the first time in 2017. Mm. And the reason why was being able to actually capture an image through a ground glass and see everything composed in a 2D kind of world is really special. The other factor with it was I knew I wanted to document the setting and take my time. And a 4x5 camera itself lends itself to being very methodical about how you want to proceed. Mm-hmm. And the way you interact with people with a 4x5 camera is so different than, a, you know, let's say a rangefinder, a 35 millimeter camera, or just a digital camera. You know, people are more aware of those cameras looking in that fashion. With a 4x5 camera, people come to you. They're drawn to kind of their natural curiosity of, oh, what is this camera? What are you doing? And so the specific brand I got was a Chamonix or Chamonix, <laughs> however you pronounce it, uh, four five F two. Yes. And I wanted like a newer lightweight four by five. I'd used a lot of older ones before, and mm-hmm. my worry was it's a little bit delicate in its own way. And so being out in the road and in the field, rain or shine, um, I wanted something that was a little bit more modern. And so this Chinese company has been making these new carbon fiber or wooden four by five cameras for a really good price. And so that's kind of why I went with that camera. Many of the portraits you shared seem to be very impromptu. Could you give us a basic rundown on how you got people to pose and open up for you? Every morning, that first person before you talk to them, I would hyperventilate in the car. You know, you never, you just never get comfortable. That for you know, once you get one person in that day, things go super smooth. But that first time, every single day, you're kind of like having to, you know, get yourself built back up to a place where it's like um, a level of confidence, but also just like okay. I'm going to talk to a complete stranger. You know, some things to remember is why I even want to talk to them, you know, kind of explaining what the purpose of the project is um, and finding the way to connect with them within the first minute and, you know, just to get them comfortable. And, you know, that takes kind of a little bit of time and experience. So the first couple of days, I told myself, the minute I start talking with people, I'm just going to learn every little kind of interaction and take notes on it and see what was working and what wasn't. The number one thing is learning the language of how people in the countryside talked. They use different terminology and phrases that I had never heard. Hmm. Um, for example, there's this phrase called Gokudo-san, which is their version of kind of greeting each other. But I had never heard of that before. Um, <laughs> and so it was weird because they were telling me. And then finally, one person explained what it was. And I was like, oh, that's like the unlock for me. If I start introducing myself with that phrase, it immediately changes the barrier of like, oh, you're just some random person to, oh, Maybe you're one of us. Hmm. <laughs> you know, the second part of this is just finding what is going to resonate with people. And so being able to tell the story of, hey, I'm doing this project. My grandmother is actually from the Hiroshima prefecture. You know, I just recently graduated and wanted to explore the area myself. Already mm-hmm. kind of gives a feeling to people, oh, you're also one of us. And all those little things, they seem like very unimportant, but they break down the barrier of conversation so quickly that mm-hmm. you know it actually opens people up to get comfortable very fast to even let you take a photo of them and talk to them. So you were shooting every day. Yeah, so the first couple of days were probably rough, but then you got going on it. The first day of the project and you know this could have ended the whole project from the start was Japanese roads and the mountains are very narrow. And you're also driving on the right side of the car. So everything's backwards. <laughs> and you know, I hadn't driven in Japan before, but you know, I figured, you know, it's like riding a bike. Once I kind of figure, get used to the configuration, I actually drove off a ditch my very first 
day, four hours into the project. Um, and I remember thinking, oh shit, I guess the project's over if I can't get the car out. It's a rental car, this tiny Japanese car. This super nice mom was behind me. She stopped. She called the tow truck with me. She waited an hour with me. Oh my um, god! It was one of those serendipitous moments. You know, just talking with her, I learned so much about just this region. And so I was like, you know what? I can't do this project without talking to people. And I initially wasn't going to document that many portraits of people, but. I realized just from that experience that there's so much power to understanding and actually capturing kind of what the countryside is like through people. And then in a small world, the first person I shot was actually someone whose daughter now lives in San Francisco. And he was wearing a San Francisco Giants hat growing up in the Bay Area. It was like, it was just one of these perfect serendipitous things. And so he was the first photograph I took on the entire trip. Oh, cool. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he even called his daughter in San Francisco and I talked to her for a bit. It was just this very <laughs> cute really fun moment and i remember thinking to myself feeling really good that if this is the first day of a four-month project i probably can't go through anything worse than driving a car in a ditch but you know it only looks up from here so and <laughs> so all of the photos that you're sharing like on instagram you always include that these really detailed stories to accompany the photos. So why are the stories as important to you as the photographs? For me, I view photography as a means for me to create a narrative. And, you know, I used to joke with my friends, I'm a horrible writer, but I, I love the power in which a good story can bring. Um, and I've always been good at being a vocal storyteller. And the minute I discovered using a camera to do that was like this really powerful moment and experience for me. You know, I would talk to people for 30 to 60 minutes for each photograph. You know, mm -hmm. all the behind the scenes of just getting to know them, getting them comfortable, you know, sharing things about me, but really learning about them. And after each photograph, I would write as much as I could remember down after each shot for about 10 minutes to get all the notes and stories down. Each photograph to me was this great story that I could remember or I had written down. And so it had like a special meaning to me. Yeah, yeah, no, they're great. I think it's really important. And it just adds a little extra detail. I was looking through your portraits. And I noticed that you use Portrait 160. Any reason behind this? Because I did notice you did some stuff indoors as well. I wanted to shoot with color. I knew that from the start, because I thought to myself, if I were to shoot with black and white, it changes the mood of the photographs. And I wanted to show the vibrancy and the lifestyle of the countryside. So I knew color was kind of where I wanted to go. It let me be very consistent with all the lighting. So kind of I knew how the film would react because I'd done a lot of test shooting with it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's definitely a fluid consistency in the indoor and outdoor. It's very impressive. Yeah, it portrait gives you that, but you're you're the colors that you're getting out of it are, they don't scream portra. There's like a real unique color to what you're doing. I actually started overexposing my portra shots by a stop. So almost oh. all these photos are actually kind of exposed by a stop more, where I knew that it would sometimes blow out the highlights, mm -hmm. but it, it gave a different color feel than like a typical box bead portra shot. And so sometimes it led to tricky situations where like the highlight was almost too strong, but most of the time it gave the look and feel that I kind of wanted. Though you you ended up photographing people, you also shot a lot of abandoned buildings. Uh, will you incorporate these unpopulated photos into a larger project or? I had some black and white 4x5 film with me and I actually shot a lot more of the abandoned scenes with black and white film. In terms of oh. shooting the color ones, there are some scenes where I thought to myself, if I were to make this into some kind of book format or some kind of like series format, there's something nice to be able to kind of showcase what the setting is like with mm -hmm. the people itself. 
And so I was trying to find ways to capture some levels of scenes that I thought represented kind of just the setting for anyone who's never been to the countryside. I'm still working on trying to figure out how to tie it all together. You know, I took basically <laughs> a year of not looking at the work that carefully, um, kind of taking a pause. Um, but now that I've kind of gone back into kind of evaluating some of the photographs, right now I'm trying to find ways to tie it together because I do think it's important in terms of like a storyline of what the settings represent for the people that I documented. So, For the next episode, we're going to be watching the movie One Hour Photo. I'm not sure if you've, if you've seen that. So our question is kind of based on what's coming ahead for us. And I'm not sure if this is when you develop and scan your own photos, there's like an intimate feeling to that. Mm -hmm. And when you print your own work, there's an intimacy to that. I guess the question is, how intimate of an experience do you feel that developing or scanning and printing someone else's photos is? And how would you feel about having somebody else scan or develop yours or print yours? I do a lot of analog printing as well, both color Mm -hmm. and black and white. So I always am like, oh, I can print any work I want myself but there is something that's special talking to other peers who kind of worked with publishers and had them with scans and worked at labs and blow up these really great prints is the relationship you build with printer or with the printmaker because they're all about getting what you as a creator wants out of a piece of work and so just from stories of listening to peers talk about it i actually would probably be very comfortable with it especially because i i view all these things as opportunities to learn and just getting a chance to work with someone for example who might have made you know thousands of thousands of prints and getting their opinion of how they think that the color should be or how they want to lay it out which Mm -hmm. is an invaluable experience it is different because you lose the intimacy of it but you kind of gain it in this new way with the relationship itself of the person rather than kind of the equipment or tools on if you were doing it yourself yeah Hmm. wow yeah that's like an (laughs) excellent answer (laughs) perfect you know i i think the biggest lesson i've learned from this kind of about telling a longer story is that even setting a time limit on a project like this is kind of the wrong approach i set out to myself that i would put this into some kind of completion by the four month end and what i've realized is just even looking at other people's work and thinking about it more for myself there's something about these beautiful long projects that there doesn't really have to ever be a finality and you don't have to set that before you even start I think the beauty of these kind of longer narratives are maybe in two, three years, I'll go back and do a whole nother series of photos from it. Um, maybe a couple years after that, I go take a lo- another more. And then this be- turns into a decade long project before you know it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of the most interesting aspects of when I think about these longer narrative projects is, or what I love about photography is I never feel like with like, unlike a book series, there's a real end. As long as there's an opportunity and there's still a chance to go document a certain group of people, a certain place, you know, kind of a certain artistic vision. It's never really ending. And I definitely kind of want to take photos in almost a different kind of way than I did this past time, where I've learned so much about kind of what kind of shots feel resonate with me a lot stronger and being more patient about actually shooting shots. I think when it's a four-month project, you're like, oh, I bought X amount of film. I should get through X amount of shots a day. I almost feel like that's limiting in its own weird way because, you know, you're you're judging a good or bad day based off did you get enough shots for the day versus I think if I were to go back, I would actually be happy just taking one photo a day, if even that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Being more patient with the process and getting the right scene or getting the right moment or getting the right person um, instead of rushing about. 
I've experienced taking portraits of people and kind of feeling like I'm burdening them for how much time it takes to photograph them. And I notice myself <laughs> rushing. So I, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> if you're going to take the time out, you might as well do it right is the way I view it. And so in that sense, I've kind of learned that, okay, I can be a little bit more selfish as a photographer to kind of capture that a little bit better. Well, I think that probably about does it. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on. Yeah, and this is, it's fun. Like, I'm glad the two of you are doing this podcast. I always think it's great to kind of pick the minds of people and be able to share out their work and how they think, so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, thank you so much. Yeah, no worries. Thank you again. Bye. Bye-bye. and I both process our own film. Hell, we do an entire podcast about that. Dev party. While color processing is pretty simplified and basic, C41 for color negatives, E6 for slides, and that ECN2 stuff for a bit of fun, black and white developing is a swirling gray cloud of mystery. There are literally hundreds, maybe even thousands of formulas for black and white developing. We use Rodinol for the grain, HC110 to cut fog, Xtal to cut grain, D76 for that traditional look, and even pyro for, well, we don't really know why yet, but we like it. <laughs> but, but when a photographer drops their film off at a lab, all of those choices are left to the lab. Now, granted, these folks are professionals, often with decades of experience. They've honed their craft from an art to a science and back again. Still, we've always wondered what happens when you drop black and white film off at a lab. We've done it before, and we both have no idea what goes on behind the scenes. We just drop off the rolls and pick them up a few days later. They look great, and we didn't really question why. But now we are. Why? Why do they look so good? It's a question that's always been in my head. So we reached out to about a dozen labs and a huge thanks to the five who responded. We asked them two questions. First, do you have a specific developer that you use for each common emulsion? And second, what is the practice when a customer brings you a roll of some mysterious black and white film? For example, some oddball low ISO Soviet film with like a fuzzy or meow in the name. For the first question, here's what Panda Labs had to say. Hello, this is Sarah from Panda Photo Lab, uh, answering some questions about black and white development. Uh, we use XDAL currently because we have a Reframa machine. So we used to use D76, Rodinol, Acufine for different reasons. But in 1999 is when we switched over to the Reframa. So we wanted to have... Um, reasonable developing times. It had to be replenishable. The D76, if it's being replenished, it can get crystallized and clog up the machine, which doesn't happen with Xtal. Also, Xtal gives finer grain. So we just decided that was the best way to go, and we have never had any issues since then. So Panda uses <laughs> Xtal, and I've gotten some stuff developed by them, and it really does explain, like, you get your Xtal negatives back, and they just look good. Xtal's a good-looking developer. Yeah, it is. I used it. I was using it for months without replenishment, mm. unfortunately. So then it just died. <laughs> I remember when that happened. It was a, you were having a very bad day. Was that a dev party? So the next lab who got back to us was... David from Cafe Obscura. Hey, Eric and Vanya. I basically used two developers 
for my black and white darkroom. Most of our rolls and sheets are developed using Xtal. I do it in a Jobo. I use the Xtal because it's easy on the highlights with continuous rotation agitation. Sometimes for pushing, I will use HC110. That's the other developer I have. And that is the one I will use for old film. Hmm, I like yeah. that. So he uses Xtal as well for all the normal stuff. Xtal has good shelf mm-hmm. life, six months after mixing when stored in full bottles, high resistance to breakdown from oxidation during storage or in replenishment processes, less waste, enhanced shadow contrast, and improved highlight detail in some films. So who is our next lab? So Roberts, and they emailed us. They didn't send audio, though we decided to have a special... Like a special (laughs) guest reader. (laughs) Yes. I usually use Ilford Ilfatec HC. It gives excellent results to a wide variety of emulsions. It also handles old expired film well and helps to control possible fogging of expired film. Ilfatec HC is a concentrate, so it can make many batches of working solution which also makes it very cost-effective. The Kodak equivalent is HC110, which is a great developer as well. Thank you, Marley. Thank you so much, Marley. (laughs) Uh, Very wonderful, dramatic reading of Scott from Robert's camera. So they use Ilfotech HC, which is, Hmm. I guess it's basically HC110. I mean, there's, you know, different concentrates and different ratios to water, but it's basically the same thing. Watch out for snakes. Well, actually... Uh It's really not the same. Compare the MSDS sheet and you'll see this. They're both hydroquinine based and might yield similar results, but they're not the same developers. Fine. I mean, I've I've never used Ilfotec, but I don't know. I mean, if if it gives the same results, I guess it's basically the same thing. I don't know. Maybe not. Yeah, I'm fine with that. Next, we're hearing from Icon LA. Hello, everyone. My name is Luis Diaz. I'm the general manager of the Icon. We're a film photo processing lab in Los Angeles. We process black and white, color negative, and E6 transparency film in our Reframa processors. For black and white film processing, we only use Clayton F76 black and white film developer, straight, with no further dilution from the manufacturer's instructions. Ooh, new one. Clayton F76. I'm wondering, is this maybe an off-brand of Kodak D76? Most everybody listening to this who develops their own film has done a deep dive on developers. This is something similar to the Ilfotec HC, where the results are similar, if not identical, but possibly for different reasons. I was like, I had the MSDS sheets out today, comparing both of them. This one is this, this one is that. So from what I gather, and from what lots of people say on different message boards, F76 yields basically identical results to D76, but it's not an exact replica. However, both are sodium sulfite and hydroquinine based, but there's a few chemicals difference. It's not like, for example, HC110 and, and Legacy's, what is L110. Those are exact, I think, probably. Those are probably exact. <laughs> you didn't look at those to see if they were exact? <laughs> But they seem to be pretty exact. Even the ratios are the same. But F76 is a liquid concentrate while D76 is a powder. I've never used D76 because it's a powder. I have some. It's like an old, like 30-year-old bag of D76. I wonder if it would still work. (laughs) Well, powders are much more stable than liquid. And that's one of the reasons why powders are better. They are more stable. But Mm -hmm. liquids are so much easier and safer to use. Powder is you get powder, fumes, fumes and, and powder, and you can breathe those in. And that's 
probably not great. Well, use one of the masks you have lying around in your car or wherever. <laughs> Everybody has masks now. Use them. I, I'm really interested in this developer. Oh, really? Yeah. It was a surprise. Look at, Look at you at all changing it up here with the developers. That's right. Old dog, new tricks. I want to try it out because I've never really used D76 and I want to get those results, like kind of the traditional black and white results. Actually, I don't think I would have heard about Clayton at all if it weren't for Icon. So thank you very much. So for our final lab, we have Blue Moon from Portland, Oregon. And let's hear what Peter has to say. Hey, this is Peter. I'm the one of the main darkroom technicians here at Blue Moon Camera. We're standing here in the darkroom talking about film developers. If the question is, is there uh, a developer that we use for most emulsions, uh, the developer we use most commonly is going to be D76 1 to 1. Uh, it's a very time-tested developer. It was formulated sometime in the 1920s. It's economical. We use the Kodak mix in the package. I usually mix up about seven liters a couple times a week. Mix that one to one. So we're, we got, you know, bang for the buck. Uh, it's got a nice contrast to it. Nice balance between film speed, sharpness, all that stuff. It's just a good all around uh, developer that pretty much will develop any film. Uh, and then for sheet film, I do that in open trays, three open trays in the total darkness. And most of the sheet film that I'm developing is HP5. And I do that in Kodak's HC110 Dilution B for five minutes. Uh, you can mix up exactly as much as you need. There's so many different ways to dilute that developer. And Dilution B gives you a real nice time of five minutes for HP5. So this is, what, the fourth lab using mm -hmm. HC110 or, in Robert's case, Ilfotech HC, which is you know, very similar results. I always thought that HC110 kind of gets a bad rap. Interesting. Am I wrong about that? Why? Um... I don't know. I mean, I've heard people call it liquid gold and all of that. It seems kind of so middle of the road. Like it's not D76, you know, which is a traditional developer. It's not something old like road and all. It's just kind of just there. I think there. maybe people just don't know about it. I, I, I didn't know anything about HC110 until you basically said it like a million times. And then I was like, oh, maybe I should get that stuff. <laughs> and now I love it. <laughs> Honestly, a few people have messaged me and you about it. Like, thank you for turning me on to this. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, if you can simplify your developing at home with just one bottle, I mean, why not? Yeah. You know, it's a concentrate and, you know, you just dilute it. That's great. If you buy the generic legacy version of it, which really is identical, uh, you mm -hmm. save a ton of money. It's, it's a lot cheaper. Yep. It's, a, it's a really inexpensive developer to use. And you can cut it even more dilute than dilution b which would be i think it's called dilution h which is using half the chemicals and it's a little longer time but it, it works it's such a wonderful developer you can even do stand with it ansel adams was also a big fan of hc 110 it's just a great yeah. developer all right and for the second question what is the practice for when a customer brings you a roll of some mysterious black and white emulsion the same labs gave us their answers and they vary in some really interesting ways let's hear from panda first again if we get like old vintage films basically anything that's like 50 years old or more we just develop for like 12 minutes it's a good general time it's about 50 percent extra or a good solid push so that usually works pretty well with old film in the other case of weird mainstream new you know or rebranded films that are unknown we used to use the mass developing chart it isn't always reliable we'll check it now and then but for things that we really don't know we usually just kind of go with a nine to ten minute base time which is a good in between 
for most films. Um, otherwise, we can do test strips. So we can you know, just cut off a little bit, test it at eight or nine minutes, see how that goes, and then do another strip for 10 minutes, see how that goes, if the customer wants us to do that. Also, for weird films like that, we do highly recommend the customer bracketing, testing different ISOs before they give us the role, and then we can do test strips, and that would give us a much better idea of how to actually shoot the film. All right, well, that's about it. Thanks a lot. So 12 minutes in Extol for old film. It's kind of cool they're able to do that with one developer. Keep it simple. Yeah. One thing that really struck me about Panda is that they seem to be really into like working with the customer. Say, for instance, someone has like a mysterious 100 foot roll of film. Sure. Seems like you can go in there and, you know, ask them for a little bit of help and advice. And honestly, camera stores are so awesome like that. Like, you know, I go to Silvio's sometimes here in Torrance and Silvio is like super nice and always super helpful. And he has knowledge, yeah. you know, he gets excited too, because now for the most part, people are going in there and he have the digital cameras and stuff. So when someone goes in there and is shooting film, he has a little <laughs> bit of shine in his eyes like, oh, you're shooting film. Let's talk about this. <laughs> So let's hear again from David at Cafe Obscura. See what he does. HC-110 I will use with old and expired film, such as the old Soviet film that you mentioned. Funnily enough, I had a role come in uh, the first month I was open. Turned out it was from about the 70s, but it was complete with the Cyrillic writing on it and didn't know uh, really what it was. So I did a stand develop uh, with four milliliters of HC-110 for an hour. It was 120 film and uh, we got images and they were pretty darn cool. I'll send you a third little note just to continue that story. I sent those images to a Russian friend of mine. He estimated that the images were from the 70s, although he did say that in some places of Russia, people still look like that in 2020. Um, so there you have it. Thank you. So another plug for HC-110, I mean, it really, for old film especially, it's really just magical. It has a little bit of a chemical in it to suppress base fog, and it's wonderful for old film. Yes, a very simple method to developing any sort of film, really, is the Ansel method, which is HC-110, 1 plus 90 for 18 minutes. Four inversions every three minutes. You, when you're doing things like semi-stand, which is what this would be, you do need proper agitation or you will get bromide drag. But Ansel knew what he was doing. He would develop every modern film and modern in the 70s and 80s in this formula. This is what he used as a day-to-day -day developer. I've used it a bunch. It's how I test film. It's my go-to method. Instead of doing stand in HC-110, I do this because you get the same results. Yeah, maybe less of the bromide drag. A little bit. Yeah, you don't get much of that with HC-110 as far as I can remember. Okay, so let's hear from Robert's camera. And when it comes to the old oddball film, I usually turn to our friend Google. I can often find info on almost any film with some online research. Some people recommend doing a clip test, testing a small portion of the film, but I'm not too fond of the idea of cutting into a customer's film and possibly ruining a frame. I have found that the Ilfitec HC can handle a wide variety of films and staying around the five to seven minute range seems to yield consistent, usable results. Thank you, Marley. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> also, I'm just like, who is this kid? <laughs> she's amazing. Oh, I'm sorry. She's my daughter. <laughs> 
I need to get her on Dev Party. You do. Yeah, you absolutely. Maybe she could use Ilphotec HC for five to seven minutes. <laughs> this is something I've never really done. Just kind of going for it. And I know that Robert's camera, I mean, they, they said that they do research on the internet and I'm sure they use massive dev chart and I'm sure they, they pull from different areas just like we all do when we're looking for yeah. developers. Well, and they've been around for a long time. So I think they probably have seen a lot. Yes. I think a lot of places have seen it all come through. So they have notes and they have, you know, their own times tables as far as uh, different emulsions. I'm sure. I'm sure. And they seem to not really mention stand at all. It's an easy thing to do if you don't know what your uh, emulsion is or how to develop it. Just throw it in a stand. But they don't seem to be interested in doing that. I like that. That's, I, I kind of respect that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I also like that they were like, eh, we'd rather not clip the film. Yes. I do like that. No offense to Panda. I think they were talking about maybe a different thing, maybe, you know, test roles and all of that. But if it's just like a single role of, hey, I found this film, can we develop it? Maybe being a little hesitant to do a clip test is a good thing. Yeah, I sent you an article actually about a camera that was picked up in Portland. Oh, yeah, yeah. That had the Mount St. Helens photos on it. Yes. That was pretty That neat. was really cool. Yeah. So if you find an old camera somewhere, always get that film developed. If you do, can do it yourself, do it. It's always worth it. I, I have never gotten anything as important and monumental as historic Mount St. Helens photos, but I've gotten some weird stuff before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen some the of woman it. On oh my the gosh, chair? the lady. Yeah. She haunts my dreams. <laughs> I think it's just the photo. I'm sure she was a very lovely person, but it's fucking weird. <laughs> okay, so let's digress and hear from Icon LA once again. If we're not provided with any processing instructions from the client at the time of drop-off, and there's no instructions on the film, and we're not able to find any information online, then we simply guess. So for a low ISO Soviet film, like, say, Cibama 64 or 65, we would probably use a processing time similar to Ilford Pan F, which is a 50 ISO. That is ballsy. <laughs> I mean, look, they're a lab that does this as professionals. They know what they're doing. I'm absolutely not questioning that. But wow, could I not do that with my limited experience and and my timid nature in the, in the darkroom? Could not do that. That's pretty cool. Honestly, all film, especially when it comes to expired film and super old 70s film or whatever you have, you know, it's always hit or miss. And I think for the most part, like if you wanted to make sure that you're going to get good results, then you would probably get fresh film. It's all just a test. Yeah. They're doing this every day they're developing film and they got yeah. it so closing this out we'll hear again from blue moon let's hear from them again so encountering uncommon films or really old films we might have a couple different ways to go with that of course the massive dev chart is an extremely good resource uh, for times and temperatures and developer combinations pretty much any film you just plug in your film and your developer and it spits out different times at different temperatures and different film speeds something where you can't find it on the massive dev chart and there's no manufacturer data or if it's really really old we might use uh, some diaphine which is a two-part extreme compensating developer you have your part a you have your part b the time is the same for all films and it can be used at a temperature range of something like 60 some degrees up to 80 some degrees so you don't have to worry about temperature you don't have to worry about time and it lasts forever uh, you buy it once you mix it up and it just keeps going it might turn colors you get kind of gross looking like old, old stuff i'll always put a little restrainer in there benzotriazole is a restrainer so it pulls back on the base fog and it's good for film that's been sitting around or it's gotten hot 
over the years. Ooh, diaphine sounds like my cup of tea. Yeah, diaphine sounds really interesting. Well, I guess per roll, it's pretty normal in price, but you have to buy it in like batches of 50 bucks worth of diaphine. It's a big investment. It is, but how much is it per roll? So basically with diaphine, you're looking at two ounces per roll. So that's 64 rolls per gallon. And that's without replenisher. That's just letting it sit there for as long as diaphine will last, which is apparently a long time. 50 bucks for that much. It's not, it's not rodinol cheap, but you know, it's just the problem is the $50 investment to get it, to get you going with it. Yeah. But then you have it. The idea of just being able to like get it out of the gallon and pour it in and set your timer is fucking cool. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, this would be like using C41. You just kind of keep using it till it till it doesn't work anymore. Dies. Yeah, till it, til it dies. Yeah. So I guess in conclusion, we can say that like any craft, everyone has their own method. It's interesting to hear the variety of responses from each lab. And seriously, to all the labs, thank you so much for getting back to us. That's weirdly cool that we were able to pull that together. None of them had the same answers. And also none of them will have the same results. You'll likely get some great negatives from all of them but they might look a little different depending on the lab you send them to. Any way that we could support local businesses is great. These are mom and pop shops and need our support. Most labs are attached to camera and film stores. Anything you buy from them, whether it's processing or just buying film and such is a big help. And even if you don't use labs, they can be great sources of information. Blue Moon, for example, seems almost encyclopedic in their love and knowledge of processing. For example, Peter from Blue Moon, uh, in his recording that he sent us, he kind of went on a tangent about an old developer called D23. I guess I'd heard of D23 before because there's like a whole D series. People love the D. What can I say? <laughs> what? Let's hear what he has to say about this. Uh, for my personal work lately, I've been experimenting with some D23. We have uh, we've got a bunch of old chemicals, powdered chemicals here at the lab that were given to us. Uh, like a kilogram of methyl and a ton of sodium sulfite, which are the only two ingredients you need to make D23. And it's a semi-compensating developer, so it'll keep um, working on your shadows while it doesn't blow, your, blow out your highlights. And I've been really liking the results from that. It's extremely cheap and easy to make at home. If you wanted to just order those two ingredients and get some distilled water, it's almost child's play to mix up D23. Ooh. If there's two ingredients of anything, and I already have one of them, I'm just like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> it's two ingredients? Yeah. So for future dev party? Yep. We're probably going to get those two ingredients and make our own D23. I can already see it. Absolutely will. So basically, it's a simplified version of D76. We did look that yeah. up. There are numerous recipes for D23, including an array of two bath formulas as well. We are stoked. Stoked, I tell you. <laughs> Without a lab, we probably wouldn't have even heard about that particular developer, let alone the raw chemicals to make it ourselves. So again, thank you to all the labs for replying to us. Thank you for sharing their knowledge. I didn't expect really any of them to give us like, here's the developer we use specifically. That's knowledge. That's cool. And it's really awesome that they gave it out just for free. It's wonderful. Well, we've had our fun. Would you like to do the intro to the zine reviews? You want me to do the zine review intro because you know that I hate the zine review intro and I want to change it and I don't know what to say about it except like it's zine review time. I don't know. <laughs> what do you want me to say? <laughs> okay, so thank you, Vanya. 
So because we checked our answering machine. So do we like check our mailbox too? Do we like have the old like mailbox opening like sound? Message for you, son. Yeah, like a little like, all right, guess what? We we got snail mail, y'all. <laughs> or I don't know. We do get mail sometimes. I love getting mail. Mail is fun. Also, mail is a weird word. <laughs> oh, you are a delight. So this episode, we've got one zine. We also have an announcement. So so the zine that I'm reviewing this week is Issue 3 by Daniel Novak. One of the great things about zines and doing zines is when people want to trade. Like seriously, if you do a zine, we really encourage you to be willing to trade with other folks who do zines. That's how I got Daniel Novak's Issue 3, South Carolina Road Trip. This is a half-size landscape zine. It's 32 pages, it's color and some black and white. As the name highly suggests, this was taken on a road trip from New York to Charleston, South Carolina, though he dips down in the savannah. Daniel clearly hauled ass to the South. It was winter in New York, and having grown up in Pennsylvania, I totally get that. He stopped at a rest area, a couple of gas stations, a small national park in North Carolina, and then to the Palmetto State. He didn't even stop at South of the Border, which is sort of a surreal, kind of racist, adjacent kind of place, now that I remember it. It's weird. Anyway, this issue covers Charlotte, Conagree National Park, Bluffton, Savannah, Port Royal, Beaufort, Pinckney Island, and Charleston. The photos are mostly empty, which is right in my wheelhouse. This is what I like to shoot, and it's what I like to look at. The South in winter is a truly fascinating thing to witness, especially as a northerner. Growing up, I had visions of the sunny South, but these photos are often dismal and gray. And yet, the colors, they're vibrant. The black and white shots, mostly HP5, live up to all the praise of that emulsion. Even the Fomapan looks wonderful, which is something I just can't make happen for some reason. So, this is a great zine. It's it's something that I really am recommending. He did a recent reprint, which is why we're reviewing it now, because we really only like to review zines that you can pick up. And it's available on his website site danielnovacphoto.com for eight bucks. If you've been following us for a while, you know that we've released two rebranded films. We just sold out of the second Yay! one. Yay! Goodbye, Fuzzy Perito. <laughs> we love you very much. Our first was dubbed The Slow Meow. It was a 12 ISO Soviet era film. This was what was Tasma Micrat 200. Oh yeah, Tasma Micrat yeah. 200. That's what it was. Very like contrasty, not really any gray in there. It was just black and white. Well, <laughs> it did it. have some lovely grays in there and some of but it was a very high contrast film. It was wonderful. Yeah. I really liked that film a yeah. lot. It was one of my favorites. And uh, I'm kind of sad because I only have a little bit yeah, left. Same here. <laughs> uh, it was neat to see how many people used the hashtag and shared their results on Instagram. It was kind of nice. Well, it felt like we were contributing something. I realize we do a podcast, but it really felt like like here, here's something that we're giving to the film community. It just seemed like something tangible, right? Yes. We are not film manufacturers. No. <laughs> Unfortunately, maybe one day we will be. No. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Uh, we're probably not going to have film available all the time. It's something we do on occasion to help the podcast grow. We use the money to buy new emulsions and fund the podcast without doing things like Patreon. Uh, we're able to offer you useful stuff like film and zines instead of just being like, hey, give us money. <laughs> I think we both feel like better about that. And I think we just wanted to explain that and why we offer these things to you guys. Yeah, at the beginning of the year, we really kicked around the idea of Patreon before kicking it to the curb. We're really close to doing it. Even talked to a few people about it. It just wasn't us, at least at this point. No promises for the yes. future, but for now, it's just not us. 
Yeah. And with your support, we sold out in our last film in how many days? Four days? Five days? Five days. Yeah. Slow Me Out uh, sold out in two. Wow. So I guess while we're talking about all of this, while this is our podcast, we'd really like to open it up to the community. And because of that, we'd like to make a community zine. Yes. And since so many of you have shot with the Slow Meow, we'd like to make a zine of a selection of those Slow Meow photos. So if you got the film, we would like you to submit six of your favorite Slow Meow shots. We're going to compile a zine together with everyone who shot with it. Everyone who appears in the zine will receive a free copy. You can always buy more copies, but the rest will be sold and traded like any other zine. Yeah, we have some criteria and we'll list all of that criteria on our show notes and on our blog, on our website. And if you have a question message us on instagram we're, we're pretty good about getting back to you on that usually uh eric's pretty good <laughs> now i just kind of feel like a hacker now like i just go in there and like search around <laughs> looking for the good stuff i kind of am <laughs> but the important thing here is that we get to the part where you ask me when the cutoff date is how'd you get down to the shore <laughs> the cutoff date is july 30th <laughs> so you're kidding <laughs> Why are you doing this to me? We'll have more information about this on the show notes. It's probably going to be a little more easier to handle than us. Could we finish this? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, all right, all right. And that's about all the podcasts we have, Meow. So, till next time. See you later. Bye. holy... (laughs) (laughs) just kidding of course it's not we always have to end this somehow with extras you guys aren't going to get away like this easy (laughs) oh god okay so our next episode is going to be a movie episode we've had a few in the past and we're doing one again and we'll be watching the movie one hour photo oh my gosh it's not from the 30s (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> was it my pick? I think it was, was my your pick, pick, actually. You've seen One Hour Photo, is that correct? I have not. You have not. Real quick synopsis, this stars Robin Williams, and he plays a photo tech who, well, let's just say he gets maybe a little too involved in the customer's lives. Uh, hilarity ensues. This is not a comedy. This is kind of a fucked up thriller. It has some beautiful cinematography, pretty interesting score, and I think one of Robin Williams' best performances, to be honest. You didn't like him in Aladdin? Because he was pretty good. Okay. <laughs> No, I'm excited. It'll be great. Oh, also, our next guest will be someone we have talked to on the podcast before, but it's been quite some time. Yes. It'll be nice to have her back Mm, on. I think so. (laughs) We can give you a little hint. You might remember her from a 1990s Walgreens photo lab in the heart of... Well, that would be giving a little too much away. And she will be on to tell us all about it. Yes, I'm excited. I hope she has some cool stories. No pressure. So stream one hour photo, please watch this. I think it'd be a lot of fun. We're going to really kind of dig into it. There's a lot to talk about with this one. All right. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram by email. It's allthroughalens.podcast at Gmail. And we're allthroughalens on Twitter. 
Vanya is Surf Martian. And Eric is Conspiracy.of.cartographers. Both on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff all through Lens Podcast to be featured. We're also doing a Spotify playlist for each episode. So check those out and see what we're listening to. Just search all through a lens. You can also find our episodes on Spotify as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever the hell else you find your podcasts. Subscribe to us and leave us a review. The music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. And thank you all so, so much for listening. Again, thanks to the labs for getting back to us. Thanks for everybody who called in. We love you. See you in a couple of weeks. Um, Fanya? Yes? Do you want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go! Okay! Oh, wait. I didn't press stop. <laughs>